Uh, We are going to be looking at the life of Isaac. So this is the gospel of Isaac. And the title for today's message is Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac has already appeared during our time uh, looking at Abraham's life. Isaac was the promised child to Abraham and Sarah. Now, in comparison to the lives of other members of this family, Abraham, uh, Jacob, Joseph, Isaac is not really featured all that much. Uh, In fact, our time in his life is only going to be two Sundays, this and next Sunday. Then we'll begin covering his son, Jacob. Um, And even what we'll look at today, even though the, the... focus has shifted to him, he's not really featured all that much in this passage. We are looking at a love story this morning. It is a unique love story, but it is indeed a love story. There are many famous love stories, right? Romeo and Juliet, Cleopatra and Mark Antony, Tristan and Isolde, Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, Rocky Balboa and Adrian... Han Solo and Leia Organa. Some of the best, right? I was challenged uh, to see if I could make a New Year's resolution for 2024. Now, to be fair, I'm not really all that into New Year's resolutions, uh, but Mr. Tucker challenged me to see if I could go a whole year without a single Lord of the Rings reference. Uh, Books or movies. And I think, I think I can do that. One of my favorite love stories is written by the great author J.R.R. Tolkien. (laughs) The author of The Lord of the Rings. Now, it would have been his 132nd birthday this past Thursday, for those who are keeping track. Uh, This love story, though, that I'm talking about is the story of Baron and Luthien. You can find this story in one of Tolkien's other works, The Silmarillion. Get ready for a year in The Silmarillion. Baron, a mortal man, passed through the realm of Doriath, where he saw the beautiful Luthien, a, an immortal elven princess, dancing in one of the forests. She was said to be the most beautiful maiden in all creation. And Baron immediately fell in love with her. She fell in love with him as well. But to make a very, very, very long story short, after many epic quests and battles, she faced a choice. She could escape death, go to the undying lands, where she would live forever, but it would be without her love, Baron. Or she could go back and be with Baron and face mortality. She chose Baron, and they lived together all their days. This story has special significance to Tolkien. In 1917, a young Uh, Ronald, as Tolkien was known, and his wife Edith went for a walk in a glade near Roos, Yorkshire. And there, in the glade filled with hemlocks, Edith sang and danced, inspiring this tale. And this is actually the exact same way that Chanel and I fell in love as well. She found me dancing in a glade. (laughs) Just just kidding. If you know me at all, you know that uh, dancing would be right out. Um, Years later, when Edith finally passed, uh, Tolkien had the name Luthien engraved on Edith's tombstone beneath her name, and Baron is actually engraved under his name. It's a beautiful love story. Um, Edith was Tolkien's Luthien, and he loved her deeply. Now, that does not count as a Lord of the Rings reference. 
We'll read this morning through portions of 24, but we won't be reading all 67 verses of this chapter. Uh, I'll leave that to you uh, in your own time. We'll unpack it by looking at the charge, the quest, and the marriage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning uh, for your goodness and your love, your kindness. We praise you, Lord. We ask that you would speak to us and that we would have ears to hear. Uh, Show us things about yourself that um, maybe we haven't seen before or uh, maybe grant us a little bit uh, deeper knowledge of you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge. Uh, Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Genesis 24. If you don't, uh, there are Bibles on the back bookshelf as well. It will be on the screen. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 9 of Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go uh, to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, Then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So you'll notice we are a little bit out of chronological order this morning uh, because we concluded the gospel of Abraham in chapter 25, and now we're back in chapter 24 here. Um, At this time, we've stepped back about 35 years Abraham, I'm sorry, lived to be about 175 years. Um, And so at this time, Abraham is about 140. And Isaac is 40 years old. In Genesis 23, to kind of catch us up a little bit here, uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, Isaac's mother, has died. Part of the blessing that God promised to Abraham was that his descendants would own the whole land in the region. But here in chapter 23... Abraham still owns no land. So he goes to the Hittites and seeks to purchase some land to bury his wife. So he negotiates uh, with a man named Ephron, one of the Hittites. Uh, Ephron actually wants to give the land to Abraham, uh, but Abraham's like, no, I'll pay you. And he's he's like, no, it's for free. And Abraham's like, here's money. Um, So he negotiates, he buys the land. uh, And on that land is a field with a cave um, the cave will serve as a burial site. And so this becomes the only property ever owned by the patriarch Abraham. As we move into chapter 24, Abraham's centrality in this story begins to fade and the focus shifts to Isaac, who will serve as the next patriarch of this family. Our passage begins by stating that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham has been blessed. And the most important blessing that he has received is the promised son, Isaac. And it's through Isaac that the ultimate promised son would come. The text says Abraham is old. He's 140. And the reality is that death was nearing. Abraham is considering the covenantal promises of God. He's considering all that God has said to him about his future and his offspring. 
and that they would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And Abraham uh, realizes uh, that he needs to take some steps here. In order for this promise to come to fruition, Isaac needs to be married. It was a different time, a different culture. Um, The responsibility ultimately fell on Abraham as the father to seek out a bride for his son. And Abraham takes this responsibility seriously. Isaac is now 40. He's not married. Uh, Abraham is selective. He's not going to allow Isaac to marry one of the uh, women from the Canaanites or the other surrounding tribes and nations, all the ites, um, a woman from this region. And so he calls his head servant, and this is likely Eleazar of Damascus. Uh, he was mentioned in a previous chapter. Abraham calls Eleazar to him, and he charges him with this most important task. And it's assumed because Abraham is up there in years, he's not going to be able to make this journey. And so he turns this charge over to his most trusted servant. Um, At this point, Eleazar probably runs the household as it is. He runs the day-to-day. Abraham isn't involved in as much. And he gives him this charge. Now, we see something a little bit peculiar here. Uh, Abraham tells Eleazar to place his hand under his thigh. This is a really odd ceremony, to say the least. Now, this is only seen elsewhere in Scripture one other time with Joseph and Jacob. And as I try to explain this, I want to be as careful as I can with it. Um, But I just want to say, sometimes the events and details in Scripture are a bit uncomfortable uh, and bizarre. Um, I I know we don't really like to think about Scripture as having some things that might be bizarre, uh, but there are some words and phrases and events in the Scriptures that are strange, that translators have kind of cleaned up for us a bit. And this is one of those times. This phrase, under the thigh, is a euphemism. Uh, It's an expression used in the place of one that may be considered unpleasant. Uh, The word for thigh is the same word as loins in the Hebrew. And it's a euphemism for the male generative organ. So Abraham is telling Eleazar to swear an oath with his hand placed upon the organ that God had commanded Abraham to circumcise. As awkward as this is, and I can tell by how quiet it got, (laughs) as awkward as as this is, there is actually something significant about this. We just don't catch it in the English. And certainly it is strange, at least to us. It's definitely not something we do in our culture. Um, And to be realistic, I don't think it's something that was all that familiar in that culture either. Um, So as awkward as this is, uh, we do need to look at the significance of it. And it it really may not be so odd when you stop to consider how God has dealt with Abraham in the past. Back in chapter 17, God gave instructions to Abraham on circumcision. You know, I I saw a comedian, I'm not going to go into the details, but I saw a comedian uh, make a joke about this, like like God had just randomly decided to do this. And God didn't. This was not random. This was not something that, uh, you know, God was just like, yeah, go do that. Um, this, this was symbolic. It was significant. And, and I'll show you in a second how. But um, I do want to mention as we look at it, um, as we look at this symbol of the covenant, let's not try to over-spiritualize this as well. God works in very physical, fleshly stuff. Why this oath placed under the thigh, with a hand placed under the thigh? Why circumcision? Well, it all comes back to the covenant and the promise. God has over and over again reminded Abraham of the promise, which is ultimately concerning his seed. 
Seed is not the seed you plant in the ground, but rather referring to his offspring. And so this ceremony and uh, the whole act of circumcision is pointing to a sort of legal document, if you will, of the covenant, of the promise. It's dealing with offspring, it's dealing with seed, and it's pointing us to the ultimate seed who would one day come, Jesus. So this ceremony ties this charge given to Eleazar to show the significance of it, to show how important this is, how it's all connected to the covenant, to the symbol of the covenant, the document, if you will, of the covenant. Abraham has staked his life on this covenant. He has staked his life on the future of this promise. And now he's entrusting the whole future of this promise to his head servant. He is saying to Eleazar, remember your circumcision. Remember what this all means, what this all points to. None of it was random. So if the promise is to pass down, Eleazar must be faithful to this charge. He must be successful. Abraham is deathly serious about the promise. This is not just go and find my son a really nice woman to marry. And so when we see this in the overall story of the scriptures, when we see this in the story of redemption, we see the importance of Isaac. We see the importance of his wife. We see that they will continue to care forth, carry forth physically the promise of the seed to come. All this talk of marriage and the seed, everything that happens here with offspring has messianic significance. In other words, as Luther, Augustine, and others have shown in their writings about this, this act of quote-unquote placing the hand under the thigh and, and circumcision, it's all pointing the reader to Christ. So now you will likely never read that the same way. And it may be a bit uncomfortable, but that can be a good thing because we need to see what, it, what, is, what is significant about it. We might think it's strange that God would do things this way, that the promise would be linked in such a way to something this physical, but the promise of the Messiah is as much a physical promise of lineage as it is a spiritual promise. It's flesh and blood. Jesus, the Son of God, who became flesh, as we just looked at last month, so the charge, we'll move forward, you can relax. The charge is pretty simple. Uh, it's found in verses 3 and 4. You will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant hears this charge and asks a pretty logical question. Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take, back, take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham tells Eleazar, if... if a woman is not willing to come with you. You're released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. Isaac is not to go back to Abraham's homeland. God's promises are tied to the land that they live in, the land of Canaan. And so Isaac must remain there. As serious as Abraham is taking this responsibility, as serious as he is about protecting the promise, we also must take note of God's sovereignty and providence in this story. We'll talk a bit about it later, but in verse 7, Abraham says this, He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So this speaks to the ultimate source of Abraham's confidence here. He does trust his servant. He charges him solemnly. But he knows that just as God has been faithful to him all these years, 
how faithful God has been to his promise thus far, he will continue to be faithful. And so he will send his angel before Eleazar, and he will make this happen. And just as Abraham said back when he was about to offer Isaac uh, as a sacrifice, the Lord will provide. The Lord is going to do it. So perhaps when he says that the Lord will send his angel before you, he is thinking of the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus that spoke to him all those years ago and swore on himself to fulfill the promise of multiplying his offspring. He will go before. He will make this happen. Eleazar is convinced, and he promises to do as Abraham is charged. And now he begins his quest. Let's read about this quest. Um, Genesis 24, 10 through 28. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her Be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord, and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms, weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder, and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord, and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Let's all take a breath. So what do we see here? Well, Eleazar takes ten camels from Abraham's herd, travels back to the area where Abraham's family lives. Uh, This is not a quick afternoon drive. Got a map here to show you. So this was a journey. And Abraham dwells in Beersheba toward the bottom of that map in the Negev region. Eleazar journeys some 460 miles near Haran in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is the Greek name for the region known as Padan Aram. Quiz to be uh, taken later. Camels can travel approximately 20 to 25 miles per day. So this journey would have taken Eleazar somewhere around 19 to 23 days. Um, without any stops at the quick fill, uh, to arrive there in Nahor. 
And then there's also the return trip, right? And uh, this is no simple task, to say the least. Eleazar takes with him all sorts of choice gifts. This is partly to give to the future bride, but also to the father of the bride as the bride price. This is more than just the bride price, though. This is showing some extravagance. This is showing that Abraham has become quite wealthy. Now listen, I'm not in favor of arranged marriages, uh, but as the father of two girls, maybe I am slightly in favor of the bride price. I don't know. Uh, But the the bride price was a cultural thing, um, and there are some cultures that still today practice these type of things, but uh, this would have been a payment made by a man or his family as a gift to the family of the woman he desired to be his wife. And it was to gain favor between the families, to kind of uh, recognize that we're taking your daughter to our family and uh, we want to be at peace with you. Eleazar arrives outside the city. He camps out around a well. Now, interesting, a lot of things pertaining to marriage happen around wells in the Bible. A lot of discussion about marriage here. Jacob would meet his wife at a well. Moses would meet his wife at a well. In the New Testament, we see Jesus talking with a woman at a well who had been married five times and was living with a man who was not her husband. So a lot of things about marriage, a lot of conversations about marriage happening at wells. Eleazar prays, and in his prayer, he lays out the situation. He lays out a plan And he asks the Lord to guide him in this plan. And before he could finish his prayer, God answers. I think this is maybe my favorite part of the whole story. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca. Now she's described as being beautiful. She's not been with a man. We see that she's kind. She's hospitable. She offers Eleazar a drink and then to water his camels until they are done drinking. How much water does a camel drink? Glad you asked After a long journey, camels will drink up to 25 gallons of water. And there are 10 camels, so uh, if I calculated correctly, that's about 250 gallons of water. The average jar would have been somewhere around three gallons, so uh, Rebecca was busy for a couple of hours. I think this really speaks to some of her character. It speaks to her kindness and just the general hospitality of that day that would have been significant, you know. Uh, Abraham, we saw already a few chapters back, Abraham was hospitable. You know, he said, I'm going to, to the three visitors, the, the angel of the Lord and the two other angels, um, I'm going to give you uh, some bread and some water, I think it was. And then he prepares like a whole feast for them. Um, so hospitality, hospitality mattered to them. And uh, God answers. I mean, he makes it clear. He makes it really clear. You know, to, to the degree that he answered this, I mean, it was exactly what Eleazar had prayed that he would find. Now, we're not going to read through verses 29 through 59, but um, what happens next is Rebecca heads home. She tells her mother uh, everything that's happened. I think what that's really pointing to is she knew what was going on here, even though Laban, or I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself, even though Eleazar hasn't said it yet, I think she knows what's going on. Uh, we're also introduced to her brother, Laban, uh, he comes out, and he's excited. He's excited. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. Laban is not a good dude. Uh, we're going to see that in Jacob's life. He, he's not a good guy. He's kind of a jerk. Uh, but he's excited. Laban sees all the treasures. He's excited. Um, and so he welcomes Eleazar into the home, and he invites him to a meal. 
Eliezer can't wait any longer, so before they eat, he counts the whole story again. Part of the reason we didn't read through verses 29 through 59 is basically it's a repetition of everything we've covered so far. And he, he shares about his master, Abraham, his family, he, this charge, the quest, and his prayer, and how God answered by sending Rebekah at that exact moment. And the family is blown away by all of that. And they agree that God has orchestrated all of these events. God has brought him to them. And in the end, the family and Rebekah agree. She will go to be with Isaac and to be his wife, and they will not delay. She'll leave immediately. Now, one of the things that we can draw from this amazing quest is God's providence. Providence is God's sovereignty in the service of his wise purposes. We're seeing one of the ways that God works to guide. He guides our steps. He guides our lives. And though this is a pretty epic moment, I think we can all agree, um, it's important in the larger story of scripture, there's a lot of uh, stuff of ordinary everyday life going on as well. Uh, everyday circumstances, the way that God answers. So there's no audible voice from heaven. There's no visible angel. There's no miracle given. But yet we are seeing the Lord's guidance. We're seeing uh, Eleazar being guided at just the right time and, and the right place and that right moment. And his, his prayer is pretty precise and God answers And so we can be encouraged by that. It's clear that this has come from the Lord, that this was part of the Lord's plan. We can be encouraged to trust the Lord, to pray, and to rest, knowing that he will lead our steps. Prayer is a powerful tool. It's speaking to God the Father. And as Hebrews shows us, we can come boldly before the Father. You know, we don't have to be fearful. We don't have to hold back or be hesitant. We can come boldly before our Father. So we can come to him about all of our concerns. We can come to him about the decisions that lie before us. Prayer is not a tool to twist God's arm into moving. In fact, the events of this show us just that. You know, God answered as he was praying. You know, it's not like God was going to do one thing, Eleazar prayed, and then God was like, oh, you're right, I should change my mind. No, his, his prayer was actually uh, in accordance to God's will. Uh, it, it's in tandem with God's sovereignty and his providential plans. So God uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes. Prayer doesn't alter his plans. It doesn't change the direction of his will. Uh, at times, prayer might change the direction of our will. God will use our prayers to reveal his plan and move. And God has designed prayer to work within his will. And so, to me, when, when I think of that and when I consider prayer in that way, it actually strengthens the idea and concept of prayer. It, it empowers it a bit to know that God uses this and designed prayer to be effective. Now, this doesn't mean that we'll always know what God's will is before we go to pray. It doesn't mean that God will always move in the way in which we pray. At times we'll pray for something and God seemingly does the opposite or allows certain things to happen we would not have prayed for or even prayed against. In those moments as well, God has worked in our prayer, even in an answer of no, even in a time of delay. He's shaping our lives and the path that he has for us, how he's leading us along. And so he brings growth to our trust in him, 
Sometimes that's through great difficulty. And he's maturing our faith. As the, pro- the writer of Proverbs writes, very familiar, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, we have to do this all perfectly because we're human. He's God. None of us trust with all of our heart. But as we trust him, as we grow in trusting him, he will continue to work in our lives. He will guide us. He will straighten our path. He will guide and lead. And so God led Eleazar, and he revealed to him his plan. And the quest was successful because of God's faithfulness and steadfast love, as Eleazar prayed in verse 14. This leads us to our final section that we're going to look at. We're going to discuss the marriage. Uh, Verses 59 through 67. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. Take that to mean that Eliezer probably traveled with a few people as well. Uh, They blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring (coughs) possess the gates of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roi. Don't know if that's right. And was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil, she covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she become his wife, became his wife, and, she, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Like Abraham, Rebekah must leave her family and country in an act of faith in order to journey to Canaan. By faith, she leaves and she'll marry Isaac, whom she's never met before. She leaves behind everything. And there's no, uh, no place in scripture that mentions whether she ever returned to see her family or not. After this long journey, again, probably somewhere around 19 to 23 days, she meets her groom-to-be, Isaac, and they're married. And we're told Isaac loved her. This is actually only the second time in scripture where Uh, We see love mentioned between people. Um, Previous was Genesis 22 when we saw that Abraham loved Isaac. This is the second time that's mentioned. So the servant's quest was successful. Abraham and Eleazar trusted that the Lord would go before, and he would faithfully guide, and he did. And there's definitely some things here that we can draw from this love story, this story of marriage, that would maybe be helpful when considering marriage. Now, for those who are already married or for those who are single, and do not desire to be married, this can encourage you in in maybe some different ways. Maybe it can help with other life decisions when considering those things. But for those who are single and do do desire to be married, there are some things to take note of. Uh, There's a way that we can apply this historical narrative to our lives. This account is not given to us uh, as a detailed instruction for dating or courtship. Uh, It's just not going to go that way. But it can encourage you. Uh, There's no scriptural command here uh, for arranged marriages, uh, but we can find some wisdom 
uh, from this passage. First, we see that marriage is good. It's a blessing, and it's important. It is God's plan in place for a man and a woman to have a sexual relationship and for having children. And as you see in Ephesians, we're not going to go there, but it's also a picture of Christ and the church. Having said that, as important as marriage is, it is not essential to have a full and complete life. A full and complete life is only found in Christ. In fact, you could be married and not be having a full and complete life in Christ. The new covenant does much to elevate singleness. Singleness can be received as a good gift from Christ, 1 Corinthians 7. What this means is that if you are single and you are content, you can receive that as a gift from the Lord. And if, you're a, if you are single and you desire to be married, that's a good thing as well. Second, this account gives us a glimpse of what is important when seeking marriage. Abraham sought a bride for Isaac from his kindred, not because he didn't like the Canaanites, not because of any racial reasons, but because the people of Canaan were wicked. You know, we know from history that many of the tribes and people groups in this area, um, not only did they worship idols, but they, they practiced child sacrifice and, and other things like that. They were a wicked people. And the promised seed was given to Abraham and his family. And so he knew that uh, though his kindred were not necessarily all worshipers of God, remember when Abraham left, he was an idol worshiper, um, at least they were not wicked in the same way that the Canaanites were wicked. And so one thing I think we can glean from this is that when searching for a spouse, it's good and wise. It will go much better for you uh, when, when looking for a wife to find another person who is a believer in Christ, to be equally yoked, someone who is a believer. Now, third, we may be tempted to think from this story that the way to find a spouse or make any other major life decision is to pray for some divine revelation. Uh, you know, maybe we put the towel out on the, the grass at night and say, if the grass is wet and the towel is dry, then I'll know I can take this job. Um, kind of like Gideon. When Eliezer prayed for the Lord to show him who would be the right woman, he asked for a specific sign. But the moral of this story isn't pray for a special word from the Lord. He never promises such divine revelations in all situations. You know, I, I came from, um, uh, how do I word it? I, I went to a Bible college that's nickname was uh, World Evangelism Bridal College. Um, and it was often joked, you know, that people would just like show up day one and be like, hey, the Lord told me you were the one. And that's not how God works. You know, in scriptures, there's only two occasions where God specifically tells someone to marry that person. One is Joseph with Mary, and the other is Hosea with Gomer in the Old Testament. So unless you are being told to marry someone because, you know, God is going to send a special visitation, or he's telling you to marry a woman who... Uh, was a prostitute, I think you should avoid the special revelation route. I think you should just uh, seek the Lord and his ways. So the moral of the story is not to seek for these divine revelations, but to consider uh, God's ways. You know, when we pray, we can share with him our desires. We can share for, with him um, our need for guidance, and he will guide us in probably much more ordinary ways. I think with marriage, we can be guided by just the general wisdom principles in the scripture. Look for someone who is in Christ, as I've already mentioned. Someone whom you love. 
someone you can serve and love, someone who is heading in the direction you are in life. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to be exact in all the uh, ways that you do things. Everybody who's married can attest to that. You're not going to be exactly the same. But is there a general agreement over the way that you seek to structure your life and how you want to raise a family? Here's a big one. Do you enjoy each other's company? These are good things. And I think that applies as well to just general life decisions. You know, considering taking a new job. Uh, Is this a job that is in any way going to uh, uh, be a bad witness you know, is this a job that will provide for me financially? Is this a job that, um, you know, I, I, I want? Is this a job that I'm just going to loathe the entire time? So just general wisdom things that you can lay before the Lord and make a decision. I think sometimes we just overcomplicate these things. So trust the Lord and begin to take the next steps. In relation to marriage, if that's dating or courtship, make those steps. Maybe find a well. Seems like a good place in scripture to find a spouse. So wrapping this up, how does this passage point us to Christ? What is the gospel of Isaac here? This, this romance mirrors the divine romance, Christ's love for you and me. Remember that Isaac is a type of Christ in the Old Testament, and he was the son of promise. His life is a giant arrow pointing us to Christ. And if Isaac is a type of Christ, then certainly Rebecca is a type of the church, the bride of Christ. Abraham sent his servant into a very far country to look for a bride for his son, There was a high price paid for that bride. Rebecca journeyed to her groom to a land that she would share with him as an inheritance. Paul writes, uh, as I mentioned in Ephesians, um, about a lot of these things. Uh, But at the beginning of Ephesians, he says this, God the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He sought out a bride for his son. Only this time he sent his son as the faithful servant. His servant suffered and was successful in paying the price for his bride, and that price was his life. Now he has been reunited with his father, and he sends the Holy Spirit out to bring his bride to him to share in his inheritance. And so this is the story of divine romance. God sought out a bride for his son, and his spirit draws his bride to him. Will you go? Ray Ortland writes, The gospel sounds the voice of our husband, who has proven his love for us and who calls for our undivided love in return. The gospel reveals that as we look out into the universe, ultimate reality is not cold, dark, blank space. Ultimate reality is romance. There is a God above with love in his eyes for us, an infinite joy to offer us, and he has set himself upon winning our hearts for himself alone. The gospel tells the story of God's pursuing, faithful transforming, triumphant love. So receive his love by believing on the Son. And by grace, you can love him and be filled with joy. As Peter writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you did choose us before the foundations of this world. We thank you for sending your son to pay the ultimate price for us. Lord, I ask if there's anyone here who has not yet believed that you would just give them the gift of faith this morning, that they would believe on the son and receive his love and receive his joy. 
We thank you, Lord. Lord, as we go forth from here, I ask that we would be spreading the aroma of Christ, the aroma of life to all those who we come in contact with, that we would trust you, that we would grow in our trust of you, knowing that you lead us and guide us in decisions. We don't have to complicate it. We don't have to uh, seek and seek and seek as though there's some hidden will that's mysterious that you're not going to tell us that you will guide our steps and you're with us in our decisions and choices. I ask that you would give us freedom to make choices. Just let us feel that freedom, Lord. And give us wisdom where we lack. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.